Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Hadn't the worship been especially good this morning? Would you show some love to our players and singers <clears throat> and to that choir? I know some of them, you know, like me, have kind of, we're advancing in years and we can't do athletically what we used to do. And I saw one of my friends as he was going out and I said, well, I know you can't run anymore, but after this morning, I know that you sure can dance. Amen. <laughs> what a blessing to be in God's house today. And a special welcome to everybody, not only here at the Nine Mile Campus, but to our brothers and sisters at Spanish Trail. Uh, we're delighted to have everybody there this morning at our campus across town. And then to those of you that are worshiping with us online on our web stream or on Facebook Live, it never ceases to amaze me throughout just about every week I run into somebody who knows somebody that can't be here regularly but that watches online. I was having that very conversation with one of our members this morning who has a disabled son who can't get out of the house but he watches regularly every Sunday morning and that's one of the great blessings of technology. Now if you ever use an excuse to roll over and sleep another hour, then I'm gonna find you and discipline you in Christian love, right? Uh, but if you can't be here, uh, then by all means take advantage of it and we're delighted for everybody who, who is with us here this morning. Uh, my Bible's gonna be open for the next 35 minutes or so to the book of jo uh, Jonah, I sorry to say Joshua. Don't go to Joshua, go to Jonah. And uh, if you can't find it, open your Bible to the very middle, hang a right and you'll come through the big, beefy, prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, then you'll hit the smaller prophets, and just about five into those smaller prophets, you'll find the book of Jonah, and it'll only be a couple of pages in your Bible, only 48 verses long, and I blew somebody's mind the other day when I told them I was going to preach eight messages out of the book of Jonah, and that's what I fully intend to do, three out of chapter one alone, which is where we'll be rooted for a few minutes here this morning. One of the innovations that's changed uh, our military and how our military functions in recent years involves the use of what's known in military circles as UAVs. You know what a UAV is? Unmanned Aerial Vehicle. Anybody know what the acronym is or what the nickname is? That would be a drone, that's right. And many of you have seen drones. Man, drones are an incredible work of innovation and they're great because they are unmanned, as the title indicates. Uh, they're operated by pilots indeed, but those pilots can be hundreds, even thousands of miles away. You can have uh, an army pilot or an Air Force pilot in Colorado operating one of these things in Afghanistan. The drone sends a signal to the satellite, satellite sends a signal to wherever the operator is, and they can stay in the air upwards of 20 hours at a time. One comes up, replaces the other, and you can have 24-hour round-the-clock surveillance on enemy territory, high in the sky, an eye in the sky, and the enemy has no idea. They are outfitted with super high-resolution uh, cameras, they're outfitted with two missiles that can be used if the need arises, and many times that's exactly what happens. The enemy may well think that he's operating in absolute secrecy in a very covert kind of way, but there's an eye in the sky on him that he knows nothing about, and with no warning whatsoever, their careful plans oftentimes are thrown immediately into chaos 
by this explosion of power that they never saw coming. In the book of Jonah, we find this morning human rebellion in the crosshairs of God. Uh, Jonah, of course, if you were here last week, you know that uh, Jonah's a prophet of God. He's a Hebrew, he's a Jew, a man called by God. And he has been a man called by God to preach a message of repentance to a backslidden Israel. But out of nowhere, God came calling to him and gave him the most difficult calling that the prophet could have imagined, maybe the most difficult calling possible in that world and in that time. And when Jonah receives this call from God, unlike times before, he does not immediately embrace it. In fact, when Jonah receives this call from the Lord, he's offended by it. And his response is this foolish attempt to do what really can't be done. Jonah tries to run and hide from God. And today, we're gonna see immediately how foolish a response that truly is. If you couldn't be here last week, let's back up, begin our reading right at the beginning of Jonah. Jonah chapter one and verse number one. Everybody ready to read, would you shout amen this morning? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, very real person, living in a very real place, born to a very real father. And here's what the word said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Father, would you take this, the reading of your word, and by the spirit of God, plant it, beginning in our minds that it might begin to trickle all the way down to our hearts that our entire life might be affected, changed, transformed, redirected, whatever you want to do with us today, Father. We want to be available to hear your voice and to follow your call. For your divine glory, we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Most of you who are just vaguely familiar with the book of Jonah know about the great fish. We'll get to that shortly. But you also probably have a hint that Jonah was a rebel. 
He was disobedient to God, and that would be right. He is a rebel on the run, and the way that he responds to what is the obvious call of God on his life, a call that could not be misunderstood, a call that was crystal clear, says much about what can happen when you and I hear the clear call of God or sense the clear direction of God and decide to rebel against the word and the very will of God. I want to point out three things that are obvious from our text this morning of what can happen in our times of intentional rebellion against God. First, a rebellious spirit leads to careless responses. The narrative of Jonah begins with God's word to his prophet. We open the page to Jonah and instantly we have God speaking to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. That was just about the most difficult thing that Jonah could have been given to do, the most difficult calling that God could have possibly imagined was this very calling he's giving to Jonah here. I mean, it's one thing to take the message of repentance to people who look like you, think like you, uh, revere the same God that you revere, but this is radically different. Jonah's being called to go about 500 miles to the northeast from where he's living there in Geth Hefer, just around the vicinity of Nazareth, where our Lord Jesus Christ was raised to leave the land of Israel and go to what is the northern region of Iraq. We've actually been very close to where ancient Nineveh work and Bell and I were together with a group of people not far from what is modern-day Mosul in northern Iraq. And that's where Jonah was being called. And he was being called there to kind of walk around the city and say, the judgment of God is coming if you don't get your act together and get turned around. And that was very frightening to him. It was frightening to him, as we saw last week. It was offensive to him. He was actually angry with God because he had no intention of going there to preach a message of repentance. He didn't want God to possibly have mercy on them, to show them grace of any kind. He wanted God to rain a fireball from heaven down on them and consume them because Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The greatest threat to the national security of Egypt in that, or of Israel rather, in that day were the Assyrians. They were a people that were known for their sophistication, their culture, but even beyond that, for their military might, their military prowess, for their violence, and for their savagery. And so the very thought of of that was offensive to Jonah. He wanted God not to forgive them, but to judge them. So his initial response is one of fear, one of anger, One of self-centeredness, frankly, he turns his back to God in order to look out for himself and he begins to head the exact opposite direction. God calls him to go northeast. He turns and begins to walk southwest to the port city of Joppa on the Mediterranean. And we are told here that he hops a ship bound for the most western port imaginable and that is the ancient city of Tarsus, somewhere near the southern coast of Spain. This was basically the end of the earth. The map stopped at that part of the world. Nobody knew what lay west, if anything lay west, of what we know today as Spain. And so in his mind, it'd be like me running to New Zealand. He's running to the farthest port 
that he can find the farthest place imaginable from God, all in an attempt to escape from God. Now, the problem with the way Jonah reacts is, if you'll notice it instantly, it's just all action. He hears the word, the adrenaline starts flowing, his mind gets away from him, and all of a sudden, he's got to act. Seems like there's something in the Bible about being still in order to know the word, the will, and the ways of God. But there's no stillness in the life of Jonah. This is all action. We don't see any deliberation. We don't see any thoughtful consideration. We don't see him seeking wise counsel in the will of God. There's no prayer, not one utterance of prayer. It just appears to be a decision that's 100% knee-jerk. I'm sure you've never made a decision like that. 100% knee-jerk, which is always a problem in life. Let me ask you in all sobriety, have you ever made an impulsive decision in life only to wish you waited for a little while, amen? Only to wish that you had thought the matter through just a little bit more? Have you ever let your emotions kind of get turbocharged and take over your mind and your spirit? Ever make a quick decision before that you later came to regret? Oh, that I could only go back and have a redo, only if I could get back on the tee box and take a mulligan again, one that's really difficult, a decision that's impossible for you to undo, although if you had it to do over again, you'd do it completely differently. All of us in the room could nod our head and say, you know what, I've been there and I've done that. And certainly that's the knee-jerk reaction that Jonah makes here. He'd actually convinced himself that life was going to be better away from the father. It's no different than the prodigal son. The prodigal son went and demanded his inheritance on the spot because he wanted to get out from under the authority of the father. He honestly had convinced himself in his youth and inexperience that life would be better away from the father. Now, it may well be that Tarshish wasn't the first place that came to Jonah's mind God said, go northeast. He just started going the opposite direction. I think he just started walking. And he goes down to Joppa because he knows he can get to a lot of different places from Joppa. And when he got there, maybe he's just thinking, let me go down to Joppa and see what's happening down there. And when it just so happened, as he got to Joppa, that there was a ship bound for Tarshish. And I'm pretty sure that's not like an Amtrak train or a daily flight to Nashville on Southwest from Pensacola Airport, there wasn't a ship going to Tarshish every day. In fact, there probably wasn't a ship going to Tarshish there regularly at all. I think Jonah found a ship to Tarshish when he got there, which just so happened to be the farthest point available, and he begins to rationalize in his mind, oh my goodness, a ship going to Tarshish. Well, maybe I was mistaken back in Geth Heifer when God called. Maybe God wasn't actually calling me to Nineveh. Maybe he's actually calling me to Tarshish. Here's this boat. Why shouldn't I get on it? Maybe this is an open door. Because if it weren't God's will, then why am I able just to walk up and buy a ticket? I've seen people make decisions like that. All day long, every day, twice on Sunday, people rationalize their way out of the will of God in ways that sound like that, 
unbiblical. Jonah knew exactly what the will of God was. And most of the time, we know what the will of God is for our life. But sometimes when it's hard or when it runs contrary to what we want to do, I've heard people come to me trying to get a pat on the back from their pastor or for someone that they know that walks with the Lord to stamp an approval stamp on what they consider to be God's will. And they think, listen, all of these situations are coming together in such a way. I don't understand how this couldn't be the will of God. And then what comes out of their mouth is utterly contrary to the word of God. It's kind of like the guy that on a diet who's trying to lose weight. He walked into his office one day carrying two 12-packs of Krispy Kreme donuts. And his buddy looked at him, bug-eyed, and said, what in the world are you doing with those? We're counting calories together. What's going on? You're not supposed to have those. And the guy said, well, you know what? I passed the Krispy Kreme store on the way, and I just began to pray. I prayed to the Lord, God, if it's your will for me to have a donut just today, I want a parking spot right by the front door. And he looked at his friend and he said, you know what? On the seventh time around the store, <laughs> there it was. And I just concluded it had to be the will of God. Can I make a statement? That ship in that port in Joppa bound for Tarshish was not an open door sent from God. It was a test from God. That's what it was. Part of the reason that we trust God too little is that we trust our own wisdom too much. Amen. And that's what gets us into trouble. There is a reason. Right after one of the greatest, most memorized statements in the Bible, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in, on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Everybody quotes Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Nobody quotes verse 7 that says, do not be wise in your own eyes. And that's what Jonah's kind of doing here. Jonah's fear led to a kind of panic where he pieced together this crazy scheme, this escape plan that would eventually lead to his undoing. How much better things would have turned out if he had just simply paused and reflected and prayed and considered what is likely to happen to me or to anybody else who hears the clear voice of God and tries to put a sock back into the mouth of God, tries to shut down the voice of God. There's a reason the Bible says, James 1 and 19, let every person be, say it out loud, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's too bad Jonah didn't have that scripture. You have it though, and so do I. Don't let a rebellious spirit lead you to make careless responses in your walk with the Lord. Be still and know. Everybody with me, say amen. A second thing a rebellious spirit does is it leads to chaotic circumstances. Rebellion leads to storms. That may be the biggest takeaway from this passage. Certainly, we're all familiar with, with the storm that Jonah's rebellion led him into. I was reading through the letter to the Hebrews just a few days ago and read these words in Hebrews 12 and 
verses 25 and then later verse 29. And I piece them together here for you because I think it fits so well with the narrative of Jonah. Here's what the writer to the Hebrews says. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking for our God is a consuming fire. Isn't that a great statement to apply to Jonah? Amen. See that you don't refuse him, and that's a reference, of course, to the Lord who is speaking. Listen up, pay attention, obey, for God is a consuming fire. There's always judgment when you refuse to follow the leadership of the Lord. That's just a great statement. The first sentence describes what Jonah failed to do. The second sentence describes what Jonah found out as a result of failing to listen up to God. The prophet who ran from the great city of Nineveh in his run from God walks right into a great wind. Don't miss the play on words. God's basically saying if you don't go to the great city, you'll walk into a great wind. And it'll be far worse than if you would have just obeyed me to begin with. And so get this down. To run from a God-given opportunity is always to run into a heaven-sent storm. When God gives you an opportunity straight from heaven to glorify them and magnify the greatness of his name, if you refuse to do that, then you will walk right in to a heaven-sent storm. And make no mistake, God is the one who is sending the storm. Now, what Jonah didn't know is there was an eye in the sky, amen, and it wasn't a drone. There was an eye in the sky that had him locked in the crosshairs. And from a place that Jonah could not spot, could not sense, could not identify, neither Jonah nor the sailors could see what was about to happen. God launches what the Bible calls a great wind. The word is literally a word that means to throw or to hurl as it's rendered here in the ESV. God hurls a wind. God flings a storm. It's what an Olympian does with a javelin. He reaches back and he throws it as hard as he possibly can. And that's what God is doing here. Sometimes we have suffering and difficulties for various reasons. Sometimes we suffer or we experience difficulties or go through chaos in life because of sin. Sin will bring chaos in your life, your sin and mine. And that's certainly the case with Jonah. Not every sin always brings immediate difficulty. It may not come quick, uh, much the same way when you, you turn your ankle on a basketball court or hit your arm on the bedpost when you're getting up in the middle of the night. You, you know what happens, but the pain oftentimes happens in a delayed kind of way. You know, when you injure your ankle, for example, the pain is always worse the next day. Isn't that right? And sometimes that's the case. You can sin and seem like you're getting away with it today, but as the Bible says in no uncertain terms, whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, whenever, be sure your sin will find you out. And that's what Jonah experiences here. One of the great themes of this section of Scripture, really the entire book of Jonah, really the Bible for that matter, is the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. Y'all believe God is a sovereign Lord? Amen? That God really is in control of all things? See, when you come to grips with that, you'll sleep like a baby at night. 
Part of the reason you up tossing and turning, worrying all night, you don't have a very big view of God. That's what the problem is. Circumstances are bigger than God is in your mind. So as you grow along in your faith, you need to learn to understand just how God, big God is. I have a book in my library. It's a great book. I wish I'd have read it when I was 18 years old. When people are big and God is small. And I'm telling you, if you've got teenagers, kids in their 20s, get them that book because that's a game changer right there. Learn early on the importance of the bigness of God, the sovereignty of God over all things. In this picture in Jonah chapter one, everything is totally obedient to the sovereign Lord. The wind obeys the Lord, the waves obey the Lord, even the ship and even the pagan sailors are operating in the will of God. Those pagan sailors are gonna end up coming to faith in the almighty one true and living God. I often get into discussions with people about the doctrine of eternal security and the possibility of losing salvation. And I'll often say, well, you know, Jesus said in John 10, 28, that we receive eternal life when we're born again. And last time I checked, eternal means like never ending. So how can you lose it if it doesn't ever end, amen? That seems pretty simple to me. But then I go on and say, and he also says there that no one can snatch them out of my hand. And sometimes people respond, oh, well, I get that. Nobody else, no other thing can snatch us out of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't include me. What if I want to remove myself from the hand of God, man? Pastor, it's different if I personally want to walk away. Really? Maybe we should ask that to Jonah. Because that's what he's trying to do. I said last week, I firmly believe that when he gets on that boat to, Joan, uh, to Tarshish, he is finished with God, or at least he thinks he is. But God's not finished with him. I mean, Jonah's the only thing in this entire scene that's not obedient to the voice of God. But here's the thing. God has no intention of letting him go anywhere. He's not intending to let him walk away. He's not intending to let him run away. He's not intending to let him sail away. God disciplines his children. You cannot release yourself even from the grip of the grace of God. So God sends a storm to arrest his attention as a means of discipline. Hebrews 12 again says that. God disciplines those he loves and scourges everyone who is known as a son to him. And when this storm comes, man, it terrifies the sailors, doesn't it? Look again at verse four. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out, to his God, which I think is interesting given that these are likely Phoenician sailors, greatest sailors in the world. The Israelites really weren't a seafaring people. Those were the people who lived along the coast of modern day Israel. The Phoenicians, greatest sailors in the world. No question those sailors had seen one storm after another through the years, hardened men of the sea, but they'd never seen a storm like this one. And they get real spiritual real fast calling on their gods to save them. It's kind of an interesting contrast, isn't it? I mean, the ones who didn't know God were the ones doing all the praying up on the deck 
while the one who was a prophet of the true and the living God, who should have cried out to the one true God, was below deck, curled up in a fetal position, fast asleep, dead to the world. Now that brings up an interesting point because whenever you run from God, can I just say it? You're gonna bring others into the chaos with you. I've had so many people say, look, this is my business. It's not your business. It involves everybody around you. Jonah's suffering because of his own sin. I mean, the storm is caused by Jonah's blatant disobedience, but he's not the only one on the boat suffering because those godless sailors are also suffering and they're not suffering for their own sin, they're suffering because of Jonah's sin. He's bringing them into this crazy picture. Not only that, they're hauling cargo. What about all those merchants who are gonna lose everything on that boat? They're gonna be they're going to have to pay a price economically because of the sin of, of Jonah. And the point simply is you can't sin in isolation. You can't go about your own business treating God at a whim, thinking this is just between me and God. It's my business and nobody else's. No, it's like the effect of secondhand smoke or the effect of your drunken binge. You don't just do that in isolation. Other people are always affected by the decisions that you and I make. So beware of the false notion that your disobedience will land you in a land of peace and safety. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For our God is a consuming fire. And with that in mind, that takes us to a final thing, and that is that a rebellious spirit leads not only to chaotic circumstances and not only to quick and careless responses, but it leads to a compromised testimony as well. What you say you believe about God and about your faith is always altered in the eyes of others based on how you live your life. Rebellion always compromises your gospel testimony. When the captain finds Jonah in verse six, he says to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Let me just ask y'all a question. Is that what you want your lost friends and family to know you as? This careless, lazy, disobedient, marginalized follower of the almighty God who created heaven and earth. I hope not. But Jonah's identified based on the first impression of the godless sailor, and it's not complimentary. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. That's just something, man, because the pagan sailors are doing all the heavy lifting in this scene. <laughs> they're doing all the work physically and they're doing all the work spiritually. Now it's godless work, but at least they're trying to be spiritual. They're looking for a spiritual answer to a physical problem that they cannot control. Scurrying around, tossing crates overboard, trying to lighten the load. 
One of the things that you ought to do is compare Jonah chapter 1 to Acts chapter 27. You remember back when we were studying Acts and the apostle Paul near the end of his ministry there in Acts was aboard a ship that got caught into a storm that eventually broke up and landed them at the island of Malta. But you remember there in Acts chapter 28, Paul is basically taking everything over, isn't he? In the midst of the storm, he's going up on deck and he's giving orders and he's saying, you need to hold fast. Unless you stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. No life will be lost on this ship if you do exactly what I tell you to do. And yet here you have the counter to that in Jonah who should have been on deck, who had all of the right answers and yet is in the bowels of the ship as far away as he could possibly be Sleeping the sleep of exhausted anxiety in the middle of a storm. I don't know how anybody sleeps through that. One crack of lightning, I'm up all night. Can I get an amen? Not Jonah. Curled up and snoozing. It's one of the most ironic scenes in the Bible. You have an unbeliever pleading with a man of God to act like a man of God and do something spiritual that can make a difference. But he refuses. And that, of course, raises an obvious question. When others observe your life, what do they see? And by the way, y'all still with me? Say amen. Make no mistake, others are watching you. People know that you're a person of faith. They know that you go to church. They probably know where you go to church and they watch. And what do they see? Do they see somebody whose life is obviously spiritual, a person who prays, a person who believes the Bible, someone whose life is obviously different because they're constrained by the word of God and constrained by the love of Christ? Or when they look at us, do they see spiritual sleepwalkers? Religious people, but even though religious, not really very different from them. Oh, maybe they see somebody talks about God from time to time, but careless and indifferent when it comes to things that really matter. We've been, we finished up our study of Joseph on Wednesday night just a couple, three weeks ago. And what came to my mind later last, or late last week when I was preparing this message is, I wonder what people see in me. Do they see a Joseph or do they see a Jonah? Because Jonah, or Joseph rather, was just about as accurate a reflection of Christ as you find anywhere in the Old Testament. And that's what I want people to see in me. Jo- Joseph never makes a bad call, except when he's about 17 and We can forgive a 17-year-old acting nutty. But I mean, he never makes a bad call. Consistently righteous decisions that honor and please God right down the line. And I'd rather be a Joseph than a Jonah. But it's a question worth asking. Which of those two do people see when they observe my life? This little verse here that we conclude with is a commentary on the church particularly the church in America, because would you not agree that much like Jonah, the church in the Western world has been for decades now largely asleep, outpaced by the culture, 
We live in an age of sleepy Christianity, sleepy churches, where the influence of the culture far outraces and outpaces the effectiveness and the influence of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ when it ought to be the other way around. Not only is there oftentimes a lack of an observable difference between the church and the world, sometimes the lost community can actually appear to be more concerned about things that matter even than the people of God are concerned. And that's when we know we're really upside down. And that's not just particular to our generation. That's always been a tendency in the church at large. There are seasons where the church goes to sleep as the storm rages all about it. That's true in Paul's day. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 11. Paul says, the hour has come for you, the people of God, to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's just Paul's way of saying, here's the thing, church, listen up. Let me remind you, Jesus is coming soon. That's what he means when he says our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We're closer to the coming of Christ than we ever have been before. Final salvation wrapped up in the parousia, the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're closer now than we ever have been. This is not the time to be asleep in the bowels of the ship. This is the time to be on deck, calling out to the name of God, saying, oh God, bring a revival and let it begin with me. That's what Jonah needed to be doing. Wake up, call out to God, and get to work. For night is coming, the old song says, when no man can work. That's what the pagan captain was trying to communicate to the prophet Jonah. I can't think of anything that compromises Christian testimony more than out-and-out disobedience to the word and the will of God. It's like so many in our community, in our world, are saying what these sailors are saying to Jonah. Get up. Show us the way. Call on your God. Demonstrate that God can really make a difference in my life. Help me to see that your faith is true. And beyond that, not only help me to see that your faith is true, help me to know that it's real and not just lip service. Help me to know that it really does make a difference in your life and that it can make a difference in mine. What do others see when they look at your life? When they look at your marriage, their, your family, what do others see when they gaze at what's happening at the corner of Nine Mile and Guidey Lane? Better yet, what does God see? When God looks at you, does he see a committed disciple who follows Jesus, willing to help others follow Jesus? Or does he see a rebel on the run? The answer is critical for you, for our church. It's critical for the community.
See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For our God is a consuming fire. It was true back then. It's still true today. Let's listen up and obey God for the glory of God as we wait on Christ to come again. This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen this morning.